Well, good morning. We are in uh, Luke 17 this morning. So, uh, again, we're going to try to cover the whole chapter. So, hopefully I won't um, rush, rush it too much. If, please stop me if you have questions or, or comments you want to make. Because oftentimes I feel like this is too much of a, a monologue. And I, I really like for there to be more interaction. So feel free to, to chime in with questions or comments. Uh, let, me, let me open our time in prayer as we get started. Father, thank you for um, the time in your word this morning. Father, um, this is precious time to us because you are speaking to us uh, through your word and with your spirit. And I pray that you would give us ears to listen to your message and, and not something I would have to say, but, but your message this morning, that we would be transformed by it and you would be glorified. And uh, Father, may the name of Jesus be lifted up as we go through this passage now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Luke 17, um, it starts out here, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin, so... Um, well, what's the warning here? It's kind of watch your step, kind of, isn't it? You're gonna you're gonna have temptations. Um, other translations say stumbling block, which make it really sound like it's causing, trying to cause you to fail, to fall. The idea is that these are traps out there that are designed to cause you harm. So what's the difference between a test and a temptation? I know I've talked about this in classes before. Mallory, why do you give tests to your students? And to encourage them to to learn, right? So you're, you're really doing the test to promote the learning. What's a temptation designed to do? Man, I want you to I want you to fall. I want you to fail. I don't want you to succeed. Temptation and test can look the same, but the objective is completely different. Well, there can be times when you want them to fail, but a good teacher wouldn't do that, would they? Apologize for the cough. <clears throat> so tester and temptations can look similar, but the goal is dramatically different. Um, how severe is the warning he gives? What, what's the deal with a millstone? So a millstone was a this big rock that they used, it was, it was typically looked like a wheel, and they would roll it around in a circle kind of to grind up the grain. And his illustration is saying that, it, that it's better to die this kind of horrible death than to cause another person to stumble by following your example. See, that's the problem with these temptations to sin is not only does it cause sin in our life, but there are other people watching us. In fact, it, he calls them little ones. We're going to talk a little bit about the, what that means. But there are people that are watching you to see how you react to different situations. And when you fail to, to pass a, a temptation, you stumble on it, 
it can cause that other person to do the same thing. Now, what was so dramatic about a millstone and being, being cast into the sea is in biblical times, the ocean was not very well understood. So nobody knew how deep it was. And I mean, it was a real, it was a real unknown. So that it was really a terrifying thing for somebody to think of, I'm going to be cast into the deepest part of the ocean with this millstone. That, that's not a good thing. I want to avoid that. Now, who are the little ones? Yes, so it it can be, you know, those who are children, obviously, because they would still be young in the faith, usually, not always. But it's others that are immature in their faith, or if they're facing some kind of difficult situation that that challenges their faith, they they can be looking for for guidance, looking for assistance, watching others. And if you, if you happen to be the one they're watching and you stumble, then you can cause them to stumble. Moving on, it says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What's the practical application he gives to, to demonstrate this? You know, we've got to guard our relationships. Um, harboring unforgiveness causes damage to a relationship, doesn't it? You know, the closer the relationship and the more you harbor unforgiveness, it can really be an issue. And it can easily cause others to stumble. So how are we to respond when someone sins against us? What's the first step, he says? Yeah, rebuke them. So we're to start by rebuking them. A rebuke is, is to specify the sin and assign responsibility to make sure they understand, okay, this is something you were responsible for, and then warning them of the consequences. Now, this can be done in a loving manner. It, it doesn't have to be confrontational, but it, it's, it, it's a touchy situation. And I will admit that I'm not super good at, at making it come across as non-confrontational. I, I, I tend to be too direct. Um, but the goal of this is similar to, to the Matthew 18 principle. It's to bring about repentance. When that person repents, we're to forgive them, even if they're repeat offenders. Now, Does Jesus expect us to forgive someone who commits the same sin seven times in one day? Obviously, I I hope it's much more than seven. (laughs) I think this is an example of where he's using exaggeration to emphasize the fact that we should be willing to forgive multiple times. If, if a person commits the same sin against you seven times in one day, they probably were not genuine in their repentance because we're going to talk about what repentance means. But if, if they are a repeat offender and they're, they're genuine in their repentance, then you are to forgive them. What does it mean to repent? In, in general, repentance is, is a change in direction, right? But it, repentance begins by admitting that you sinned against God. 
So it begins with confession. Because if, if it's just a, a change in direction, it can be just remorse. That, well, I, I didn't like the consequences that happened. So I want to do things differently the next time. Because, you know, I'm going to slow down a little bit because I didn't like getting a speeding ticket or whatever it is, you know. Um, there's a desire to not repeat that sin. That needs to follow the confession. And then finally, it's that changed behavior as we talked about. We're, we're to act differently, and that's really the, the final step that we, we often think of with repentance is a change in direction. So what does it mean to forgive someone? Forgiveness really is is about releasing someone from a debt or the bondage that their sin has caused. Now, forgiveness grants freedom from the just penalty for sin. It removes the obligation to repay the debt, but it doesn't necessarily remove all the consequences. And an example of this is, is David. When when David sinned with Bathsheba, he, was, he confessed that to God. It's recorded in the Psalms. And God forgave him, but the child still died. It was, there was still a consequence for the sin. And there, there can be for sins in our life as well. Should we forgive someone if they are not repentant? So, commentators give this a lot of discussion. Some will say that, well, look, the command here is to forgive if they repent. But I think Jesus gave us a better example to follow when he was hanging on the cross. What did he ask his father to do? Forgive them because they're repentant of of nailing me to the cross? No. There was no mention of repentance. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. See, the problem is, if we harbor unforgiveness, we can easily end up with a bitter attitude and and it hinders our service for God. And when we fail to forgive others, we're showing that we really haven't grasped the grace that God has shown us. I personally believe forgiving someone is the best approach. Now, if they're not repentant, maybe you need to treat them with extra caution to avoid a future situation where where they might hurt you, but but you still should forgive them. Forgiveness can be a testimony, too. Absolutely. For that person that hasn't repented, that's right. That may lead them to Christ. That, yeah, if they're not a believer, especially. Go ahead. There's another scripture that maybe we should discuss about is, and that is forgive, but also it's forsake. Like how in a David's situation, you know, he repent to God, but he has to live with Bathsheba. They had a baby coming and kill her husband. It's a very serious how. What he can, what can uh, forsake? It's a very big question for that guy. Yeah. How? It's easy for us that we don't have that kind of situation. But David was very busy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a hard question. Yeah. But clearly, if you if you fail to forgive someone it probably has a bigger impact on you than it does on them because you end up harboring ill toward that person. 
And it, and it impacts us. is always against us, but ultimately if we have the perspective that it's always against God, then then we don't really have that power to forgive their debt, right? And so if you just consider that what she said, your forgiveness can lead them to Christ, but also we're just, we're just humans. We don't know the heart of man. So if we start setting expectations for real repentance before I forgive, then how do we know their heart in the, in the long run, really and truly, in that moment even? You can't tell in that moment. And so it takes setting yourself aside and forgetting that it's about you and that it's more about the relationship with God than anything else. Yeah. And, and we don't always know what repentance looks like right. either because we don't know what direction God wants them to go. And we may think, oh, you're not heading the right way when, when they are. So I, I agree that, you know, forgiveness is always the, the best avenue to take. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, if, if you're afraid of that person committing the same act against you again, well, you can, you can act cautiously maybe, but that doesn't mean you should be unforgiving. There also can be remaining consequences even if they're forgiven. That's it. Well, the, the example that I, that I cited for if someone was unrepentant was, was the way Christ acted on the cross when he said, um, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, for those that crucified him. And so he's seeking forgiveness for those who, had, who, were, who were killing him, basically, not because they were repentant, but because of his his good nature. So you see it also as a command to, to forgive people who haven't asked for forgiveness? Is that what you had to uh, Commentators struggle with this being a command to forgive when someone is unrepentant because this scripture here commands if they are repentant were to forgive. And my point is that it's a much healthier thing to do to forgive them even if they're unrepentant because it, it of the wit, as, as Linda mentioned, the witness toward them, but also it, it just frees up your spirit because when we harbor unforgiveness towards someone, it, it, it creates a bitterness within us and it, it's something we should try and avoid. So, but but like I say, it, commentators are are split on this. It, it's it's somewhat of a, I won't say controversial, but it it's a divided subject. The scripture says, "If he repents, then forgive him." But it doesn't say if he doesn't repent, don't. I, absolutely, him. that's right. That's right, David. But you've got to forgive him because it's it's hurting your relationship to God if you can forgive this person. It's I I agree. The important part of it that you have to forgive him to move on. Yeah. yeah I was just going to bring up, what about David and Absalom? Not that we get clear scripture that says David forgave Absalom, but you can see it when Absalom dies. Absalom never repented, but David mourned over his death. Right. To me, that looks like yeah, forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's another. Son who was not repentant. Right, right. There's a number of examples in Scripture where I feel like people were forgiven, forgiven when when the person was unrepentant. Um, so I think it's the wisest. It's not the same as fellowship, right? So it's not saying I forgive you. Let's go back to a hundred percent because there, I mean, there are cases where you you go separate ways. 
And that's the final point there, the, that you know, forgiveness doesn't take away all the consequences. And sometimes there are consequences. If, if someone has been abusive in a relationship or something like that, for example, you can say, okay, I'll, I'll, be, I'll forgive you for what you've done, but I'm not going to put myself into a compromising situation with you again to where, where it could happen again. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be more cautious in the future. Not that I haven't forgiven you, but I, it's an example of not wanting to cause that person to stumble. So you don't want to tempt them with a, a similar situation. And he knows the wrath of God, and he doesn't do that to them, even though they are bringing him to that point of torture and death. Right. In that, in the way that we forgive, we think it's not about me; it's about this person needs forgiveness. I deserve forgiveness, uh, and not deserve. I receive forgiveness from Christ, and right. He loves us so much that that's um, the forgiveness that we're getting from Him is because that great wrath of God is. Yeah. Good. Good. Yes, sir. It's like this prayer doesn't help us all the time. You know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah. Because it doesn't mention repentance, does it? Yeah. Good. Good. Good discussion. I I, I was hoping there would we would have some good discussion on this. Um, it's not. To me, it's pretty clear that forgiveness is the best path to take. But like I say, commentators are a little bit divided on this. Um, Moving on, it says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, So here, the reference to the apostles shows that, okay, now he's, he's, he's limiting his discussion to a smaller group, the 12 disciples. Um, so it wasn't all of his followers. And they had this request to increase our faith. So I think it shows that they thought if, if they had more faith, that they could accomplish more things in their ministry, even maybe do more miracles than they had done. And um, But Jesus' response, he states that it's, it's just, you only have to have a small amount of faith. That of a mustard seed, which is, is a really tiny seed, it's, it's almost like a, a, um, well, it, it, it's, it's smaller than any typical seed we would see. It's like a spice almost. And uh, if you had just that small amount of faith, you can accomplish great things. A mulberry tree was known for its really expansive root system. And to be able to uproot that, he's showing that, okay, just a small amount of faith is is all it takes to be able to do something really large. He's showing that, that having faith is the critical thing, not so much the amount of it, but that you have it. And other passages emphasize the importance of what is the object of your faith? And the object of your faith needs to be Jesus Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So what's the illustration that Jesus is, is given here? 
probably the, the easiest thing to, to think of is to think of the servant as a hired hand um, or an employee. So it's a rhetorical question. You know, if you've got an employee that's coming in from the field, do you want him to serve you or do you want to serve him? Well, you invite him into your home, you're more, much more likely to have him being the servant to serve you than you serving him. The, the employee is going to ask the, it would be asked to serve the employer it is a much more typical scenario. Um, so the main point of the story then is that we are servants of God. We're the servant that's coming in from the field. He is vastly superior to us. So we should seek to serve him faithfully. And this is as a privilege or, or a calling, however you want to describe it. He'll ultimately reward us for that service, but that's not something we should be expecting. The popular teaching of Jesus' day from the Pharisees was that, well, their good behavior was going to be rewarded materially. And if someone had bad behavior like sin, then it's going to bring about suffering or even disease. They, they were so prideful that they thought their faithful service to God obligated or indebted him to reward them. That's how arrogant they were in, with their attitude. So on the way to Jerusalem, he passed along between Samaria and Galilee And as he was entering a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So so he encounters ten lepers. At at that time, um, leprosy, which we commonly call Hansen's disease, Almost any skin disorder was called leprosy. They, they tended to, to lump everything under that. And they thought it was highly contagious. Henson is actually not very contagious. Um, so he encounters these 10 lepers. Um, they're following the biblical rules, by the way. Because they're, they're calling from a distance. It says, who stood at a distance. So they're maintaining their social distancing. And it was more than six feet. I know that much. Um, at that time, there were these skin ailments were thought to be so contagious that separation from other people was the only way to avoid spreading it. And it made these, those that had leprosy social outcast to the point where they could struggle to survive. So they greeted Jesus by calling him master. So it, they recognized his authority and, and they're in submission to him. And they cried out for mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. So so the, the biblical rule was if a person were were healed of leprosy or whatever skin disease they had, they would go to the priest, and if the priest blessed them, saying, yep, you're clear of of whatever this 
skin disease was, you're no longer a leper, then they were free to, to, to go back into society. So the priest was the one that made the call, are you free to go back into society? And um, he told them to take this biblical step of presenting themselves to the priest. At the time he told them to do that, they still had leprosy. So I think it, it was a step of faith on their part to show that they believed Jesus because they, they headed toward the priest before they were healed. And then it says, as they went, they were cleansed. They know they would have been rejected if they went to the priest and, hey, priest, am I, am I healed? And they're not then they would have been rejected. And, and there's probably only so many times that the priest would even allow them to, to come in his presence if, if they were continually rejected. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. It's not real clear to me even if, if this guy made it to the priest or not. When he saw that he was healed, he turned back to Jesus. So, one of the ten returned to express gratitude. The other nine Presumably, they were Jews. They didn't return to Jesus to express thanks. So, Jesus asked the obvious question, what about the other nine? You've expressed thanks for what happened. It says, only this foreigner gives thanks. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So this man not only is cleansed of his leprosy, but he receives spiritual cleansing as well. His faith has made him well. I'm convinced that Jesus is talking about the redemption that comes from faith. So what about the other nine? Why, why wouldn't they have come back? Yeah, they... And, and they, being Jews, they probably felt um, almost a, a, a pride. An, an, an ex, they had an expectance. Um, they, they felt entitled to healing as a consequence of their lineage. But to re-enter themselves into society, they needed to get the priests that's right. I'm going to say freedom because I don't have a word there. Uh, to go back and enter society. The other man was forgiven because he kneeled and asked God for forgiveness. And if he went back in society with leprosy, the priest didn't, I'm just going without thinking on the way, giving his condolence because he was free. Jesus conceded. Yeah. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. It's very easy to to have a an attitude of of 
entitlement. Yeah, Russ. Well, not everybody that was saved was a believer either. Yeah. Christ didn't just save the ones who believed. He saved thousands just as that's what he did to have other people come to faith. Right. You can't say that everybody who physically healed in the Bible Absolutely. was saved. That's right. That's just one of his miracles he did. So to say that none of the nine lepers were saved or not, we have no idea. We have no idea. You're and right. They, they may have just thought of him as a magical guy to make him better and then walk away. And they may have come to faith later in life. They may have. Yeah, yeah. It's just we know that one person, one certainly did come to faith because Christ said Right, that. right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Just, just, just another lesson we can... The world can be materially blessed without salvation. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the big lessons last week was, was how, you know, oftentimes the, the material blessings of this world are, are actually almost a curse because they'll, they'll keep you from, from seeking God if they become too much of an idol to you. Yes, go ahead. Right. But only one come back to be to the text. If the others is Jewish, probably they have to continue go to the priest and show themselves and verify. Maybe before we don't know later if they met with Jesus and thank him. Things that are not everything clear for us. But we know that time Jesus tell us all of them was healed by the word of Right, right. Yeah, all ten were healed. Um we do know that nine didn't come back and give him thanks right away. I think if there had been a delayed response by them, the scripture would have been a little more forgiving than, it, than the attitude that, yeah, Jesus, Jesus takes a pretty strong position with them. Well, where are the other nine? You know, if, if they came back a couple of days later, then yeah, I'm not sure that scripture would have taken as strong a position on it. But again, we, we don't know exactly what happens with those other nine. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So, the Pharisees had a question for Jesus, right? You know, they wanted to know when the kingdom of God was coming. Um, commentators mentioned that the, initial, the original language insinuates that it was kind of an agitated question that lacked sincerity. Um, it, it's, you don't always see that in the translation. Um, He doesn't give a real wordy response, does he? In fact, he never directly answers their question. Um, he tells them to stop looking for a visual sign. But he basically tells them, look at the king to find the kingdom. Those who reject him as king are not going to find the kingdom of God. And again, his answer to them is pretty brief because they were, had rejected him. Scripture is clear that um, Jesus is the only way of salvation. And so if someone rejects Jesus Christ, they are rejecting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is, an, is another term for for salvation. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. There's a lot of information in these verses. Um, he been, begins by correcting this common mistake that 
his coming as the conquering king to free them from Roman oppression, it hadn't occurred yet. The common mistake was that Jesus came as the conquering king at his first coming. He points out that he was going away. He said, you will not see me. So he's going away. And then there's going to be imposters. They will say to you, look there or look here. So don't let people mislead you. And then finally he says his next appearance is going to be sudden and dramatic. It's like lightning that lights up the sky. So what event was this future appearance pointing to? Um, It could have been his resurrection, his ascension, or the sending of the Holy Spirit. I think the most likely event that he's pointing to as his unexpected second coming as the conquering king, when he returns. But then he gives a a startling statement. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So he gives them this difficult truth that he was going to have to suffer and be rejected by their generation. So their generation refers to the nation of Israel. Their leaders are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So before the kingdom of God could be established, he had to suffer and be rejected. So the the days of Noah is is a warning to this generation, basically that They were warned for a hundred years and the people continued in their normal lifestyle. The eating, drinking, and marriage and their judgment for sin is commonly denied by people with worldly lifestyles. That's what occurred during Noah's time. And Jesus is saying that was what was occurring during his first coming. People are just living worldly lives and they're not concerned about the coming judgment of God. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it's a second example of of Sodom and Gomorrah that were They're living it up in sinful lifestyles and only Lot and his family escaped before God's judgment rained down upon them. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So its emphasis in in these illustrations is really on how these people are living carefree lives before the flood and the destruction of Sodom. And they're ignoring the warnings from godly people about the coming judgment. And they're going to be completely surprised when Jesus returns. What happened to Lot's wife? She looked back, right? And turned to a pillar of salt. 
there's going to be immediate judgment for those who fail to heed God's warnings when Christ returns. So how does he say we can preserve our life? He says we've got to to lose it. And if we lose our life, we'll keep it. What he's referring to is our worldly lives. And this is illustrated by the point of, you know, the person who, who goes down to get his goods out of his, from his house is, is, is living his worldly life. He's not, and he's going to have a problem. He's saying, don't come down to take your goods out of your house. Holding on to worldly wealth prevents you from gaining spiritual riches. As we learned last week, we can't serve God in money. Not that we can't have both, but God has to be the higher priority. Um. The next section says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And then some manuscripts have verse 36. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. So what what event is illustrated with this? Where some are taken and some are left. It sounds like what we call the rapture, right? So it's it's referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This sounds like what he's referring to. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures were gather. So the disciples question where. But the object of their question is not given. So we don't know if he's talking about where are those taken going or where are those dead going to be, you know, where they're going to be left. Well, Jesus clarifies what he understood the question to be with his answer because he he responds that the where involves death. Well, death is only for those that are left. Those that are taken have eternal life with Christ. So what are some principles from this chapter? Well, we talked quite a bit about forgiving others, not causing others to stumble We've got to strive to avoid offending others. As Linda mentioned, our, our forgiveness of others may, may make a big difference in their life to where they'll see Christ in us. They'll want to know, what is it that, that allows you to do that? How can you treat someone that way? We need to guard against thinking that we're good. You know, the, the Pharisees showed the, the danger of that. They thought they were good in their actions and, and they were going to face God's judgment. And finally, those who reject Christ are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's the only way of salvation. There's no plan B. So what are, what are some applications out of this? Who do you need to, to encourage to promote reconciliation? You know, we've all got people in our lives that, 
they may have stumbled because of what we've done and and we can offer encouragement to them that would promote reconciliation. God's word and, and God and his word should have a, a high priority in our life. Our priorities determine how we spend our, our time and effort. And then finally, who's the object of your faith? It needs to be Jesus. It's not so much how much faith you have. It's who is your faith in that's important. Any questions or comments? Enjoyed the discussion this morning. This was good. Let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that that Jesus gave us. Father, help us to to live differently because of what we've we've learned this morning. Help us to practice forgiveness. Help it to be a habit in our lives that others can see a difference in us. That we won't be a stumbling block for others, but that we can be a a channel for them to see Christ. Father, help him to be the object of our faith. Help our trust, our belief in him to truly impact our lives. That we could be better servants for you and bring you the glory you deserve. Pray that you'd continue to use our our time this morning, our our fellowship and our time in your word, that it would be meaningful for us and glorifying for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.